Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you promise that where two or more gather, there you will be. Thank you, God, for your word, which we are going to open and read together, Lord. I pray that you would, um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, go to work, reveal something magnificent to us about yourself that would help us um, rearrange our loves and find ultimate eternal joy in who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Quick show of hands. How many of you guys in either this season of life or a season of in the past have had a hard time falling asleep at night, which is defined as like more than five minutes? Okay, it's like most of us. Uh, and quick show of hands. How many of you, like you're the kind of person that your head hits the pillow and you're out like that? you soulless monster. <laughs> Lee looked embarrassed. He's one of them. Uh, it's, we're, we're not alone. I have that issue too. Pre-COVID, Americans reported 30% of us have a hard time falling asleep. And post-COVID, uh, it's two in three. And it's no surprise that the, the sleep economy is a $432 billion industry. Like we've all probably YouTubed and read articles and listened to podcasts about like the ways that we can hack our sleep method to fall asleep faster and stay asleep. And if you've ever been online and you're like me, you know they've got like smart mattresses and uh, fancy light globes that like imitate the sun and the moon so that we can fall asleep faster. There's gummies and lotions and incense and ocean sounds. There's hard pillows, soft pillows, super Republican pillows. There's cubed-shaped pillows. There's pillows with holes in them. There's pillows that have air conditioning. I saw one that was a muscle man boyfriend pillow which is it's like a muscular body with an arm and it comes in caramel. Think about that for a minute. Ladies, don't Google it, please. Eyes up here, Kelly. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's one thing, and it's really valuable. Listen, like we all um, should make sure that our bodies and our minds are getting rest. Uh, these things can be incredibly helpful. I myself am still on the journey of finding the ultimate pillow. I'm like a side sleeper that's ambitiously trying to be a back sleeper, and I sleep hot. So if you have the pillow for me, let me know. Um, while we pay attention to how our bodies rest, we should not lose sight of the reality that we also need to know how to find rest for our souls. Our anxious, battered, 
worrisome souls also needs rest. And that is essentially what this psalm is all about. This psalm is David's nightly prayer. And think for a moment the kind of person, the kind of life experiences that David had. Like we're talking about somebody who experienced war. Not only experienced war, but like experience it at a young teenage age, taking the life of another human being in the context of war at an early age. He was someone that was betrayed by his king. He lived in exile, eventually becoming king. And then as king, he's got the entire responsibility of the kingdom, preparing them for invasions and wars, uh, walking them through famine, which Psalm 4 is written in a season of famine. David's got to shepherd his people. He has to rule justly, justly. He's also likely at times haunted by his moral failures. He has committed adultery and murder. He's experienced great loss, the loss of his son. He knows his daughter has been raped. He's been betrayed by another son, Absalom. Like that's a lot. This dude's walking around with a lot of weight on his shoulders. So how does somebody like that lay to rest at night, calm their souls down, for a good night asleep. That is what we're gonna be studying today. What does it look like to have a nightly prayer life that could also bring our bodies and our minds certainly, but also to bring our anxious and tiresome souls to a place of spiritual rest? We're gonna look at three things he does. First, he repents of his idols. He rearranges his anger. And then lastly, he rehearses the gospel. Let's look again at verse two. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? I want you guys to recognize that he's, um, he's sort of talking in the third person. Like it's almost like he's talking to himself. And that's, uh, before we get into the details, that's an important thing to recognize. Like, how often do we talk to ourselves? Because we're always listening to ourselves, but like, do we ever actually talk to ourselves? I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, great. Oscar's become a schizophrenic. It's like week one, Chris is gone and things are getting nuts. No, listen, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, says it like this. Have you ever realized that the most that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come at you. Have you not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, David's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. I love this. David's talking to himself because here's the reality is that so often we think, I heard this quoted the other day, we think that our, that our loudest emotions or our loudest desires are our deepest ones. 
but they're actually just the loudest ones in that moment. And if we're not careful, all of our emotions and intuitions and responses from the immediate will end up becoming the loudest voice. And we, and often that voice tells us lies. And so here's David kind of experiencing that. And instead of believing in the lies that populate into his mind at night, he is preaching to himself. He is reminding himself, convincing himself of the truths of God. And so in doing that, the first thing David does is pray a prayer of deep repentance. You see, there's, there's ways in which we can pray a prayer of surface-level repentance. God, I lied. God, I uh, looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. God, I, I, I yelled, forgive me, Lord. Those are surface-level actions that we can repent from. But what David is doing is deep repentance. Deep repentance is looking at why we do those things, why we lie, why we yell, why we look at things that we shouldn't be look at, looking at. This deep repentance requires us to take a look at the idols of our hearts. And if you've been coming to King's Cross for any extended period of time, if you've taken our membership class or one of our leadership cohorts, you're familiar with this language of false idols and idolatry. But as a recap, and for those who are new here, it's important that we understand, uh, have a theological basis for what it means to have false idols. And the reason why is because often when we hear about false idol, it's easy for our minds to immediately go to like Buddha or the Ma Durga, right? Like the Indian lady with, with 10 arms. I'm doing it like jazz hands. She doesn't have jazz hands. It's 10 arms. Uh, here's the thing. When we think about false idols, we often think like those people in another country who worship those other religions, they are capable of false worship. They have the false idols, but surely not me, not a Christian living in America, reading his Bible every single day, going to church every single day, Sunday. Surely I am not capable of idol worship. But that is um, a misreading of what the scripture tells us idol worship is. You see, idolatry isn't just the worship of other religious gods. Idolatry is any time we value something or someone over God. Anytime we value or desire something, anytime we find our, our worth and our value in a thing over God, we turn that thing into a lowercase g God, and it becomes an idol to our hearts. This means that we can turn desires into false idols. This means we can turn good gifts from God that he gives us, blessings from the Lord, we can turn into idols. Matter of fact, John Calvin says it like this. Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. I think it was Luther that said that our hearts are these like idol factories that we're just continually pumping out ways in which we can worship falsely. This means that we can turn things, good things, blessings from God, commands from God into idols of the heart. As an example, we can turn our careers into idols. And think about that, like a career is something that God calls us each to. 
to work for his glory justly and rightly for the good of our cities, for the good of ourselves, to provide for our family, to provide for those in need. Like work and ambition and entrepreneurship, those are all good and beautiful things. God wants us to be ambitious. The problem is it's so easy for us to find our identity and worth in the things that we do and the stuff that we accomplish. And there are so many people that by default end up sacrificing on the altar of their careers, their families, their marriages, their children, their health. You see, career is this good thing that God gives us, and yet we can easily turn it into an idolatrous things. We can also turn children into idols. Again, our kids are a gift from the Lord. He gives them to us to steward them and disciple them well for his glory and their good. But so often, if they become the main thing and the most important thing, they could become an idolatrous thing. And often what happens in marriages, as uh, Paul Tripp points out, is that the kids end up becoming the idol of that marriage. And like, before you know it, the only reason why you're together is to raise the children. And of course, the danger with that is what happens when they leave the home and they get older? Suddenly you realize like you don't even know the purpose or value of your marriage anymore because it started out maybe glorifying God, but it's become all about the children. You see, putting our children into an idolatrous, idolatrous position in our hearts can be a very harmful thing for our marriages and including for our children. We can also turn desires into idols. Uh, I've shared with you guys before that I tend to like value comfort. I'm the kind of guy that like, I don't like my schedule to be back to back to back. I like my alone time, like in my mind, after a long day of work, like reading a book by myself, listening to music by myself, going to the gym, uh, you know, watching a movie, like those things I value, uh, they are good for me and they are good. God commands us to rest. The problem is, is that if I take that thing and I demand it, if I act like I've earned this, I deserve this, then I put all of the weight and pressure on my wife and my children. And before you know it, I'm like forcing them to worship my false idol so that I can get what I want. There are so many things, power, uh, reputation, control, the approval of men or women. So many of us walk around with like the need to know that we are liked and loved by others around us. The approval of others will dictate our disposition, our mood, the decisions we make for our lives. We'll often lie or hide like the warts in our lives because we want to make sure we are accepted and loved. And that is actually a great example bringing us back to the difference between surface level sins, repenting of surface level sins, and repenting of deep sins. You see, someone might lie. Well, it's like, God, I lied today, right? But why did I lie? Did I lie because I wanted to feel accepted by my friends or family members? Did I lie because I wanted a moment of rest 
that I didn't deserve? Did I lie to cover up my faults or weaknesses? Did I lie to maintain power and control over people or situation? You see, when you start asking yourself those deeper why questions, what you end up doing is moving from surface level confession, God, I lied today, to understanding the idols of your heart. And there, when we start to recognize the idols of our heart, only then can we truly experience transformative change in our lives. Because if we, all we ever do is repent of surface level lies, then we never get at the reason why we're gonna lie again. Um, here's what's interesting, is that these idols of the heart, they can be insidious. What I mean by that is that they will actually trick us into praying for them. We will take them to God and be like, God, help me honor this thing that I desire more than you. And here's the thing that's interesting is that so many people who end up leaving the church, the morally upright people, the most religious people that we know, they end up walking away because what ends up happening deep in their heart is they were actually only doing the religious things, doing the morally right things, not because they wanted God their savior, but because they wanted capital G God to bless and serve them and give them their lowercase g gods. And when capital G God doesn't deliver on our lowercase g gods, people will often abandon their faith. Here's what David's doing in this moment. He's being self-reflective, self-aware. He is seeing that he himself is desiring things over God. And he's bringing those things to God. And he's saying, God, obliterate these idols. Help me put them in the right place. Your honor is insulted, he says. I love what is worthless, he says. I am pursuing a lie, which is like saying, I know this idol will not deliver on its satisfaction and fulfillment that it's telling me. Only you can deliver on my deepest desires, God. A number of years ago, um, I was talking to a friend who's like college years, and this friend was confessing to me that whenever they're around like a group of friends, they get into this perpetual sin. They just keep like doing the same thing over and over again. And they said that in those moments that they knew they were sinning, and what they would say to themselves was like, well, you know, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. It'll be okay. God will forgive me. And they said, I love this observation. When we were talking about idols of the heart, they recognized, this is their words. They said, I did not realize that ultimately I was taking God and I was sacrificing him on the altar of my true God, of the approval of my friends. And it wasn't until I realized that I desired the wrong things more than I was able to truly repent and believe and make God my God. To put our souls to bed, we need peace. Peace with God. We need a reset. This week, uh, my computer wasn't working. It's like the sound wasn't happening. I don't know why. I'm not tech savvy. And I spent like an hour and a half trying to figure out changing the settings and like going online. And so then I get to like this forum and they're like, you know, first thing first, reset your computer. And I was like, ah, oh, I didn't reset my computer. So I reset it and sure enough, it works, which like almost always fixes the problem. 
when we go to sleep at night, our bodies need a reset. Our minds need a reset. And so do our souls. When we pray a prayer of deep repentance, what we're doing is we're taking our hearts that tend to drift, our hearts prone to wander, right? We take our hearts that are prone to wander, we analyze them, we confess our deep idolatrous sins, and then we reorient them, we reset them back to God. And I can't help but wonder if so many of us haven't had a real deep reset in a long time. The next thing David does is he rearranges his anger. Look at verse four. Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. I want to say three things about anger. The first thing and the most important, well, they're all important. The first thing that's very important to start with is that anger is a dangerous and destructive power. It has the power to destroy our souls. It has the power to destroy our bodies. They say that anger is harder on your heart than anxiety, overwork, or sadness. And as you may know, that anger first works from the inside and then it works itself out and it has the power to destroy relationships and communities. We can have the power to use words to cut deep wounds to hurt people and infect insidious lies in them. When we are angry, we lack sobriety. I don't know if you've ever been in that place before where like you are so upset that you say or you do something and you look back and you're like, man, what was I thinking? Right, like anger can take us to a place of almost drunkenness. And it's an addictive substance. Addictive substances refuse to confess that we're addicted to them. And that's how anger works too. We're always like, oh, I'm not being angry. I'm just being direct. I'm just speaking the truth. I'm not being angry. Like, or I'm only angry because of this person or this situation or that circumstance. Anger is a dangerous, destructive, and drunken power. And before I go on, let me just say, I know this from personal experience, as you guys have heard me share before, like I had a stepdad that was incredibly verbally and physically abusive. I would lay at night and hear him just like go to town on my mom. You know, I, I know the destructive power of unleashed and unbridled anger has on people. And I wanna start there because I wanna make that clear before I say the second thing about anger. And that is that anger, when done well, or I should say it like this, anger is not inerrantly a sin. Again, read, I, uh, he says, be angry and do not sin. Look at ex Exodus 34, verse 6. I think for us to understand the nature of anger, we need to first start with God. I am the Lord your God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and, and love and truth. The commentary that I was reading on Exodus 34, verse six, pointed out that whenever the scriptures say, I am the Lord your God, it is essentially saying like everything that follows after that is inherently a part of who God is and is a part of his glory and is a byproduct of his love, which is why it kind of is fit between I am the Lord your God and love is right there, anger. And that is because of this. Anger is love in motion. 
Anger is love in motion. You see, God is angry over sin. Why is God angry over sin? Because it pulls his beautiful and good creation away from his glory. Because sin is a destructive power that takes us away from goodness, beauty, and truth. And so when God is angry over sin, he's ultimately loving us, drawing us back to him. Which, which leads me to my third point, and that is that anger is, uh, I should say it like this, what we need to repent from is disordered anger. You see, the, the problem isn't that we get angry, it's that we have disordered anger. Follow me here. If anger is a form of love, then sinful anger is disordered anger, which is a byproduct of disordered love. You see, we love ourselves our pride, our power, our comfort, our approval, the idols of our heart more than we love God and people. This is why, think about this, this is why we get angry when someone cuts us off on the freeway, but then when we hear about some injustice on the other side of the world, we're like, huh, that's a bummer. You see, like true godly anger gets angry over injustice, not injustice of our false idols, but the, injustice, the injustices that are being committed against God and others. We need to pray for our idols. I'm sorry. We need to pray against our idols rather than for our idols. This is how Paul, uh, Timothy Keller says it. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. It says, be angry and do not sin, which is why we need to pray against our idols rather than for our idols, which brings us to our third point here, which is that David rehearses the gospel, and we too need to, in our nightly prayers, rehearse the gospel. This is what he says in verse 6 and 7. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. You see, David realizes that ultimately nothing, no idol, no desire, no career, no comfort, no praise from other people, nothing will satisfy David more than the light of the face of God. And notice that he's praying for grain and new wine in a time of famine. Praying for grain is like praying for our everyday needs. David's not not praying for those things. He is praying for the everyday needs of his people. He's in a famine. The people that he loves and leads are dying. That's like the consequence of a famine. So he does not avoid that. He is praying for new wine. 
I'm sorry, for, for grain. He doesn't stop there. He also prays for abundance. He prays for new wine. But in the midst of doing that, he also recognizes that even when he has everything that he needs, and even if he had everything that he wanted, his soul would not be satisfied if not for the light of the face of God. You see, in each one of this is, is this desire for God's glory. And the problem is that we misunderstand the thing that our heart wants most. And we think that it's this thing over here, the approval of people, our careers, this situation to be just right, health, whatever it may be. We think that if we just get that thing, then I'll have satisfaction. But the thing that our hearts desire more than anything else is the light of the face of God. And we see this reality all over the place. There's no shortage of people who get everything they want and they are still left unsatisfied. One of the more recent examples is, is Kevin Durant. Like a couple of years ago, this guy is like, you know, one of the best basketball players. He's committed his entire life since he was probably 10 or 11 years old to playing basketball, one of the best in the world. He sacrificed family, time, he sacrificed relationships, ultimately sacrificed money to get on a team to win a championship. And when he finally got what he thought he longed for, he admits that he was, it wasn't what he expected, that he still felt empty and unsatisfied. Jim Carrey is famous for saying one of the worst things that could ever happen to you is that you get exactly what you want, everything you've ever wanted, because you would realize that you still feel empty and worthless. Why? Because what we truly long for is the light of the face of God. We need to pray for these things. We need to pray to reset our souls. And here's my uh, challenge to us this week. I want to encourage us in these three principles that to, to commit our nightly prayers to doing these three things. First, talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Second, practice deep repentance. Move beyond why you move beyond what you did. And consider, meditate, ask God to search your heart to figure out what is motivating your actions. And third, rehearse the gospel. Remind yourself that the only joy and satisfaction that causes deep joy and satisfaction is found in knowing God, knowing his glory knowing his truth, his beauty, and his goodness. Nothing else will satisfy like that. Now, uh, in closing, you may, I hope by now you're thinking to yourself, this is, uh, this is good wisdom, this is good advice, but we haven't gotten to good news yet. And a, and a sermon is not a sermon unless there's good news. And if you're wondering where the good news is in Psalm 4, it is in verse 1 and verse 4. Let's look at those two now. It says, Answer me when I call God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayers. Verse 4, Now that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself, the Lord will hear when I call to him. Where does... Where does David get that kind of confidence that God's going to hear his prayer? 
Because after all, like in James, it says that the prayer of the righteous person prevails, right? Which tells us there are prayers that don't prevail. So where does David get this confidence in knowing that God is going to answer him? He gets his confidence in the reality that God did not answer the final prayer of the most righteous one who ever lived. It is Jesus who prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. And notice that he doesn't pray, Father, if it is your will, take this cross, take these nails, take this crown of thorns, take this whipping. He says, take this cup. In the Old Testament, that cup was God's anger poured out on sin. And so in other words, Jesus is asking God, like he recognized that the fullness of the anger and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. Why? Why would that happen to the most righteous person that ever lived? So that the love of God would be poured out on you. He then prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, his prayer is not answered. The reality that Jesus's prayer is not answered the righteous Jesus, the one who never sinned, whose anger was never unjust, who knew the face of God well, who lived a perfect life, the reality that his prayer was not answered should disturb us. Why was his prayer unanswered? Why was God's face turned from him so that it would be turned to us, so that we might know the light of the face of God? Do you see our confidence comes from knowing that Jesus' final prayer was unanswered so that our prayers would be answered. This is the confidence and the reassurance that we have in our nightly prayers. And when we lay our heads down on our fancy pillows in our air-conditioned rooms, we also need to lay our souls down on the confident reality that it is finished that Jesus bought our way to knowing the face of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.